Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Stephanie Benedetto, founder and CEO at Queen of Raw. Of fashion apparel's roughly $800 billion market, an estimated $120 billion of leftover, unused, and perfectly good fabric goes to waste annually. In New York City alone, over 200 million pounds of clothing ends up in landfills each year, the equivalent of filling the Statue of Liberty with garments 444 times. In the episode, Stephanie talks about Queen of Raw's online platform that connects buyers looking for fabric with sellers of unused fabric. We also talk about what it took to build the V1 of a marketplace and how she solved the chicken and egg problem and what the future looks like for Queen of Ra. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Stephanie Benedetto, founder and CEO at Queen of Ra. Stephanie Benedetto, the <laughs> Queen of Ra in the house. <laughs> Very happy to be here. <laughs> um, Stephanie, let's jump right in. What is Queen of Ra and what problem are you solving? Yeah, we definitely went for it with the name, but it's a name you'll never forget. <laughs> So, Queen of Raw, we are a raw materials marketplace. So, it's a platform for anyone, small to large, to buy and sell their unused textiles, their fabrics. Keep that stuff out of landfill and help them turn that pollution into profit. So, we are here to tackle the massive textile waste crisis. It's way bigger than anyone even thought. So when I first learned about it through my family history, 110 years plus in the industry, I knew this was a problem I had to solve. What was the eureka moment? How were you initially exposed to the problem set and the opportunity? I mean, it almost feels like a lifetime ago and yet just yesterday that I was an attorney on Wall Street. But I kind of always knew growing up that I wanted to build a business to change the world. Went through kind of education and got excited by law, thinking that it really had the power to make a difference in people's lives, that we could really change the world through the laws and rules that that are around us. So went to law school thinking that I was going to represent women, minorities, children, ended up after going through law school, getting lured in by corporate law on Wall Street, very different from kind of my initial ambition. And you know, I loved it. Before the market crash, things were booming. We were building companies. We were getting people jobs. I did some work in sustainability, in media and entertainment, felt like I really did have a voice and we were growing and building things. Then the market crashed, 08 and 09. And it got very dark. It got very gloomy. And I think I saw the height of kind of what happens when companies break apart. They're going from public to private. People are scrambling for money. It was the height of greed and excess in kind of the corporate world. And I think I took that as my moment and my impetus to say, you know what? If not now, when? Now is the time. Get back to what kind of your vision and your dream was and go build that business to change the world. Were you always aware of all the excess fabrics? I mean, in what capacity was your family involved in the industry? And then when did you realize, 
this is a huge problem. So it's funny. I was very fortunate to grow up in Greenwich, Connecticut, around my great-grandfather who lived to 104 and a half, and he only lived a few blocks from me. And when he came over on a ship, he'd tell us these stories in 1896, came over on a ship from Austria, passed through Ellis Island, and he settled into the Lower East Side. That was the original garment district, right? And he came to America chasing the American dream. He had to figure out how to make a living for himself and his family. So what did he do? He found materials and supplies nearby, all the things people had brought over on the ship with them that they weren't wearing anymore, furs, clothing. He would repurpose them and, of course, use minimal waste and minimal toxins because his bottom dollar depended on every input that went into making those beautiful fashion items. And he sold to local customers. And it was an incredibly profitable, successful business. Of course, he didn't talk about it as sustainability, right? Or circular economy. But at the end of the day, that's what it was. And it made sense for people. It made sense for planet. But it also made sense for profit. And so kind of grew up around this industry. My grandfather was also in the business. My father-in-law is now in the business, which was just by chance and a funny circumstance. So I loved the industry disliked all the waste it produced. And I just, with Queen of Roy, said, how can we get back using technology to the way my great-grandfather did business, which just made sense for everybody. So that's been kind of our vision and our dream. I had seen the waste firsthand, but when I dove into the numbers and the statistics, I don't think anybody in the world realizes how bad it is. And what were some of the numbers? Every single year, $120 billion worth of perfectly good textiles end up as waste, sitting in warehouses collecting dust, or it gets burned or sent to landfill. So people, when they talk to me about Queen of Raw, they think we're in the scrapping business. And sure, I'll sell some scraps by the pound to designers and students, but we're also talking about now up to a million yards of each skew of perfectly good stuff just sitting there. So that's one person's scrap. But it's huge in volume. And, you know, people also may hear this number, but not really understand the environmental impact that that has on the world. And it is massive. If you break it down, one T-shirt takes 700 gallons of water to produce and another 700 gallons of water to wash it in its lifetime. And that is one shirt. Two billion shirts are sold around the world every year, which translate into over 80 million metric tons of textiles every year. It's the number two polluter in the world. That is massive. It also contributes to the number one polluter, which I should mention, which is oil and agriculture. So we're talking, obviously, serious environmental impact. So even just offsetting what my startup has already managed to offset by selling this stuff and keeping it out of landfills and not having people manufacture as much, we've saved over a billion gallons of water to date, and we're just getting started. Oh, my God. So how do you start? You're familiar with the excess waste. How do you start connecting excess waste to people who want to buy it? Yes. So I knew that I needed, when I started this business, a technology partner. At the time, I didn't know how to write a line of code. Now I'm very proud to say I can know marketplace, I know blockchain, I know machine learning, AR, VR, but back then, no. But I knew I needed a technical partner to build a digital marketplace to connect the dots between supply and demand. So went to General Assembly in New York, a great community for uh, people looking for kind of technology co-founders, and 
and met my match, Phil Durasmo. He came from over 20 years on Wall Street building major technology solutions, processing like millions of dollars a day. He knew platform marketplace business. He knew software. And uh, we've been together for over five years ever since looking at this problem. Wow. So today you have this digital marketplace. Talk me through the supplier experience and buyer experience. One of the biggest things in this industry is the idea of even having a marketplace, a website. You're talking about an industry that in many ways still does things the way my great grandfather did in 1896 with like pen and paper. So massive problem, right? There's a lot of inefficiencies created about that. But we knew when we built a marketplace and when we wanted to bring this community together in the digital space, we'd have to make it as simple and easy and clear as possible. So as a seller, that was the most important side to start with, right? We need the supply. I know it's out there, but I have to literally get it out of their warehouses and digitally onto our marketplace. So we spent a lot of time and have been very successful in working with the seller community. That includes anyone from a major factory, a mill, a retailer, some of the biggest brands in the world who now are waking up to this issue. And we work with them to help them identify the waste in their supply chain, automate the process of onboarding it with the click of a button, and then over time now can start to predict and minimize waste going forward for them. Wow. So if I'm a, yep. a mill or a factory, does it entail, hey, you help me identify the excess waste. I take a picture of it outline the specs of the material and then set the price for what the like how how does let's say i have i have excess fabric now where where do i go from here yeah so we it depends on how you're storing the information we have an app on a phone we're in seconds you could take a picture drag and drop some key text and properties about the material click post my team reviews it and makes it go live You may have this in a CSV file or an Excel spreadsheet, which is great if you do, by the way. Some don't even have that. But if you do, we can now upload that entire CSV file and automate the onboarding process. Or we can actually now all the way integrate into a business's existing inventory management system, pull the data in, and get it on our marketplace. So in whatever form it sits in, we will help and we will get it on there. My goal is to get this stuff on as quickly and easily as possible because I want to keep it out of landfill and I want it to find its match. And believe me, the matches are out there. Buyers have been coming from all over the world. We have not been able to keep up with the demand for this stuff. And a lot of our sellers at first were concerned, are people actually going to want to buy this stuff? We have had uh, the opposite problem which with getting enough supply and quick enough to keep up with the demand that we have. People are coming, they're searching, they want it. And why? You mentioned a bit about price. Well, obviously, at the end of the day, this is dead stock. It's unused stuff. So it is at a discount, which is great because opening it up for the first time ever in the digital space, these buyers get access to things they could never find before. It was always sitting in a warehouse collecting dust. They couldn't get their hands on it. Now they know where in the world it sits, how much is available, and it's at a discount price. So we do work with the sellers to help them determine what discount is appropriate. We are always you know collecting our data in the secondary market around what is the actual value of these things and what would be the appropriate price and what are people willing to pay for it because at the end of the day that's what sets the price so we work with sellers to do that but you know it has a big economic advantage for the seller who makes good money better than the alternatives obviously and for the buyer who's getting something at a discount and in today's day and age with trump china imports exports trade wars 
you know, Deadstock is actually a really powerful tool to help businesses avoid those, those uh, substantial new costs. And I think something that our listeners will appreciate here is talking a little bit about the marketplace dynamics. It's once a marketplace is able to build sufficient supply and demand, now you have these amazing network effects. But in the early days, it is so hard so because hard. demand isn't there unless you have sufficient supply and vice versa. So my question for you is, how did you actually build the initial supply? Yep. So you're, you're exactly right. I mean, marketplaces in many ways, I mean, they, they fuel the world, right? Alibaba, Amazon, the biggest players are marketplaces connecting buyers and sellers digitally. But to get them going and to get that point where those network effects take off, you're 100% right. It is absolutely a challenge. What we have done is we got a website up right away even before we had almost no product on it. Why? Because I wanted to start right away collecting what are people coming and searching for? Because then I can start to try to find the supply to match the existing demand. So we started collecting data, seeing where people were coming to our our website from, what they were searching for. It was really valuable. And then we talk a lot to our prospective customers to understand it was a lot of white glove services. What do you need? What are you looking for? And then, of course, the beginning, some of it was manual. I'd reach out to a network of suppliers or people I would find on Google and ask them, do you have this in dead stock? That was a great place to start. Now, as you know, it's been quite a bit of time that we've been kind of looking at this problem. We officially went live last year and ever since have not been able to keep up with the amount of supply and demand that people keep coming. Because once you're tuned into the problem as a seller, you almost can't keep up. Like you realize now it's, it's on your forefront of your mind. I have this much waste and it's costing me this much money. I got to get it sold. So we have less than a 1% churn of sellers on our site. And part of the beauty of the marketplace that we built is sellers become buyers and buyers become sellers. That's to me is part of the essence of what's going to help with the network effects. And now that we're bringing this community of factories, mills, retailers, brands into the digital space where they were never connected before, I'm really excited in the future and we're already thinking about what are the shadow markets? What does that mean about the things we're not thinking about right now? Like Amazon does an incredible job being known as a marketplace and you can find almost anything in the world in that marketplace but that's not how they make their money, (laughs) right? They've added all of these additional business opportunities and shadow markets that maybe at first didn't make sense to people, but have become unbelievable for the business. So that's where we're going. Wow. In many ways, this marketplace is more compelling than mainstream marketplaces like Uber. I think a great example of this for a marketplace that's been around for a while now is Poshmark. So my fiance started off as a buyer. You know, she was spending hundreds of dollars buying amazing clothes that they that people weren't wearing anymore. Now she's one of the top sellers. She takes pictures of all of her clothes. She puts it up. But from a business perspective, you've now activated a user that sells and buys. And then when you're looking to generate revenue now you're taking you know a small portion of each of those transactions 
Totally agree. And, and, you know, interesting, you mentioned Poshmark, ThreadUp, The Real Real, which just went public. Like, these are incredibly powerful marketplaces around the secondary market, around people reusing and, and reselling clothes and finished goods. What I was so shocked with Queen of Raw is that nobody was doing this in the raw material space. I don't know if people didn't realize how much there was and how valuable it was, but nobody was paying attention up the supply chain. And I truly believe that the the reason we have all this waste down the chain and with finished goods is because of systemic problems. And those happen up the chain around the raw materials supply. And so that's kind of where we have focused on. And obviously part of why our marketplace has been able to be so successful is when you have the fortunate uh, opportunity to be first to market in something. Obviously it means we got to keep iterating quickly, keep growing and improving and expanding internationally. But that has obviously helped with, with some great press and awards and attention. Quickly. What are some of the causes of excess waste? Yep. Yeah, a lot of people don't really realize. In, in the fashion and textiles business in particular, which is what we have focused on and started, although many places in the future we're going with this, but a lot of times it's the fashion industry. You're buying years ahead. You're forecasting and predicting what's going to be on trend and colors and styles and what you're going to make. So that inevitably leads to buying stuff you don't end up using or changing your mind during that time period about a color or a style or a stripe. And what do you do with the stuff you've already bought? I mean, this just compounds and compounds. And in the actual physical design of products, we've confirmed with our own independent analysis that 15% of every step of every production run as you produce a fashion item ends up as waste as well. So add that all together and we're talking massive volume of valuable stuff. I mean, this is, if you're a prospective buyer, you have high quality fabric that was going to be built into the most popular clothing, shoes, maybe belts, whatever it is. And now you're getting that at a discount and you're helping repurpose tons of excess waste instead of using the 700 gallons to produce a single shirt, 700 to clean it during its lifetime. I mean, it's... It, it's exactly right. It, to me, it's a no-brainer and it's a win-win-win. The only thing it does require is a little bit of a shift in the mindset of the old school way of doing things. And that's why we have spent our time on NPR, on Good Morning America, because education is a piece of this and i think the world is waking up right now to the val these issues and the value for people for planet but also for a business's profit a and they recognize now so part of what we have also built into our platform is the data tracking right it's important that our sellers know and our buyers know the impact they have by actually using our platform. So we now give our buyers and sellers that information if they want the data around the water the toxins, the energy, and the dollars saved by them using our platform as opposed to going out and buying new. This is the first time I've heard of a company building in uh, actual dashboards and tools to measure impact. One of the hardest things in the industry is, yes, you know qualitatively that reusing is better than single use and throwing away, but... Something that I think the industry needs, not even just the industry, across industries, is how do you put objective or quantitative values to, like you said, dollars saved, resource efficiencies, gallons of water preserved. All of these things make 
a necessary layer to the conversation that is overwhelmingly neglected across industry. I'm so proud to be a part of this movement around sustainability and circular economy, but I have a very much a love and hate relationship with those words because they mean certain things to certain people. Some take a very narrow definition, some take a very broad. And to your point, there has been a lack of real data around the impact that these things have for better or worse on the world. And so that's been the problem why we think a lot of these companies don't know how to talk about what they're doing, if they're even doing anything good at all, which a lot of them are, but they don't know how to start to talk about it or where to start to begin to make any impact. So we get excited. I love going after the hot messes. You know, I'm proud to work with some major brands and retailers who are committed to sustainability, but I also love working with fast fashion and others who are the hot messes where I believe any little change that I can show and an obvious quick, easy win-win-win situation by using our platform, can have a massive impact for them. And then they can take those numbers, share it with their investors, share it with the public, and it gives them something real and tangible and has, you know, a big difference. So I I get excited by working with everyone. How do you deliver the objective metrics? Are you tagging a shirt and saying, this is the cost? Like, how do you do it? No, that's a great question. So when it comes to water toxins and energy, there are some great indices out there like the Higg Index, which when it comes to textile fibers, they have quantified for a certain size piece, the amount of water toxins and energy that go into manufacturing that piece. So we're able to use that as some of our data, although we add our own criteria and layer on top of it to figure out for an average yard of this blend of fabric, the amount of water, toxins, and energy that went into it. For the dollars saved, we actually know what the factory, the mill, the retailer, the brand actually paid for it, and we know what they're offering it as a discount. We also know in the markets what the highs and low prices are, right, that people are paying for it. So along that, people can quantify and see the financial benefits. So, um, of course, we actually had to add our own layer onto our data because now, for example, with dead stock, you're not necessarily shipping stuff from China to the U.S. all the time. Maybe you find the dead stock located near your factory in, you know, wherever you're actually producing and you're not shipping anymore. Well, that has a sustainable benefit we want to quantify too. Maybe some of the actual processes that you now use to manufacture use less water and toxins and energy, so we need to factor the new methods in. So that's where we've been continuing to build out and refine our data. But to your point, at the end of the day, they need a dashboard and they need to know and be able to track this information and understand it because it's critical. We started this in fashion and textiles, but of course we've been approached and it applies to other types of raw materials and other industries around the globe. So, you know, to me, the idea of marrying software with an active marketplace where you can monetize things, you know, is powerful and a model we hope to replicate in other industries. What other industries are there excess waste where you could match funny enough even just in the textile space think about who used textiles it's everywhere interior design automotive aviation computer electronics in their you know packaging in cases for computers and phones they use textiles so when people hear kind of fashion and textiles that's just the beginning for textiles putting that aside think about in computer electronics think about in food and beverage waste i mean All of these industries, any industry with a supply chain, creates waste of some kinds of materials. 
They need a marketplace to sell it and they need to minimize it. Funny enough, in New York alone, we have a group that have convened and are putting out a white paper in the fall to make New York City circular. And we brought government, major enterprise companies with big physical space here, as well as startups like mine who can help them solve these problems. And part of that conversation has been around, uh, funny enough, in addition to textile industry in New York, construction and actual demolition and what do you do with some of the valuable materials that we're just done with in certain buildings and so there's a lot of opportunity in that as well wow hey you heard it here keep an eye <laughs> out keep an eye out the last part of every interview is our signature lightning round where i'll ask four questions again we'll try to answer them in 60 seconds or less okay you ready to go yeah i'm ready so the first question is what is your favorite podcast and why? So I'm a little bit biased here, but uh, my favorite podcast had been Material Is Your Business, which was a podcast that I co-hosted, but I'm not saying it was my favorite because I co-hosted, but because actually the experience of having a podcast, as I'm sure you know, and being able to bring customers to the table and sit down, get to know their business, have an in-depth 45 minute to an hour conversation with them, meant so much for me, both as a listener to those episodes when I replayed them, but also in the actual experience of interviewing them, that I think anyone and everyone who has a business with customers should go out and get a podcast because you learn so much. The next question is actually one of my favorites. Given your background, you went to law school, you became a corporate attorney. I'd love to get your take here. There's fewer grads fewer jobs in the law profession and with the specter of automation on the horizon, potentially automating a, a number of legal services. If I'm a student or a recent graduate and I'm exploring a potential career in law, should I reconsider? Yeah, no, a lot of people have asked me this question. I have to say that going through the experience of law school and then my years as a lawyer working with companies small to large was so valuable to now having my own business, the way that you think about things, I mean, not to mention the dollars you save, obviously, not having to have outside lawyers and doing your own legal work, at least in the beginning of the business, has been so important. Not even having to you know, draft a day-to-day -day contract or how to memorialize something in writing when there's an agreement, that's so critical to any business. And I think there's skills you really do learn in law school. That being said, I think the entire education industry is shifting. It is very expensive. There is value in trade schools and in just getting out and doing it. So if that's what you're going for, don't be afraid. Love it. Third question is, what emerging brand are you most excited about? Okay, so this is actually not an emerging brand, but an emerging company that is, you know, obviously TerraCycle and others, we know very well they're out there and they've been doing incredible work. But I'm connected through launch.org, which is an organization with NASA, Nike, Ikea, and Dell that I'm a part of. We were honored to be awarded a prize for our work, and so were these girls at a company called BioSelection. And what's fascinating about them, and you, if you don't know them, you'll be hearing about them soon, is they are able to recycle the plastic that currently everywhere in the world cannot be recycled. And obviously the plastic problem is at the front of people's minds and for them being able to take on the challenge of what nobody can recycle now and figuring out a way, I think uh, is a game changer. Bio, what is Bioselection. Bioselection. We'll have to look into them. 
the last question of the lightning round is if you weren't working on Queen of Ra, what problem area would you be exploring and why? That's a good question too. I obviously you're tackling the world's water crisis, major problem, you know, food and water, we need that to survive and to live. But the next big thing we also need, right, is our health and longevity. So I think if I weren't tackling this problem, I would definitely want to go back to med school or and seriously study to help solve cancer. I think that would be kind of my call to action. I was fascinated, obviously, following the Theranos story, which I'm sure a lot of people did. And there's a lot to be learned in that, but there's also some bold uh, innovation and thoughts that I think other people can come in and great opportunities to go change the world. <sighs> Nail the lightning <laughs> round with ease. Aww. Stephanie, I'm going to roll out the red carpet for you. Any final plugs? Anything you want to leave with our listeners? Yeah, you know, I mean, these are interesting times with some uncertainty here. I think the best thing that can come out of the current state of the world is that people have woken up to these issues. And for anyone who's thinking about going out and trying to tackle one of these really hard world problems, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to get your idea out there. Put up a website like us, even if you don't have any customers yet or product, but to start speaking about what you're thinking, learn from your customers, iterate and improve and keep you know going because you never know when someone like Ashton Kutcher is going to listen to your pitch for 60 seconds and you're going to win the money to go build the business and change the world. Wow. The queen of raw herself, <laughs> Stephanie, thank, thank you. you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been great. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at In Good Hands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.